Good morning. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. No Toronto Blue Jays action last night. Doesn't mean they didn't make a little ground in the wild card race. Gained a little, lost a little. It all comes out mostly even, but if you are someone who looks at those playoff odds every day, you would have seen them just slightly higher than they were the day prior. I was off yesterday, thanks to Ben and Show for filling in. If you missed that show or just want a little reset here, the Jays have gone from, stick with me here, 80% playoff odds heading into the Texas series, 33% playoff odds heading into the Boston series, right back up to 80% playoff odds. I'm rounding here, but uh, 80, 33, 80 feels like nice round numbers that are close enough. That is a big, big swing. That tells you just how much can change over a couple of days here. It also highlights that, yeah, the playoff odds are kind of uh, nonsense. They change so, so quickly, uh, and these are all weighted coin flips. But what happened last night to shift them, Seattle beats Oakland 5 nothing, So no good there. Seattle gains half a, half a game in that race. But Boston beats Texas. Texas bullpen, once again, not very effective holding a lead, although you only score two runs. You maybe don't expect them to. And then Baltimore comes back to beat Houston. That's relevant in two kind of tangential ways. The first being that Houston is not a lock to win the AL West. So if Seattle or Texas were to jump them, then you'd be interested in what Houston is doing over there. The other element is if the Toronto Blue Jays land in the second wildcard spot, they'll play whichever of Tampa Bay and Baltimore don't win the division. So Baltimore winning makes it slightly more likely You'll face the Tampa Bay Rays if you land in the wildcard two spot. Now, there's a lot going on here, whether you finish wildcard two, wildcard three, or on the outside looking in. There's a lot going on between Tampa Bay and Baltimore. Those two teams separated by two and a half games right now. And the Jays, of course, have six left against Tampa Bay. So they'll have uh, an impact whether they want to or not on how the AL East shakes out. There is... A case to be made that even though Baltimore has the better record and Baltimore has beaten the brakes off of the Toronto Blue Jays this year, that you'd rather play Baltimore than Tampa Bay, who for the most part look like maybe a slightly better team. Also, you don't have to go to the trop where you're cursed. I think if you're the Blue Jays, you can't really worry about that stuff too much. Obviously, you just got to get in and deal with the hand you're dealt. What is certain is whoever gets wildcard three gets the Minnesota Twins and it'll be fist pumping uh, a little bit there. So to reset, Jays 83 and 67 currently in the second wildcard spot, a game up on Seattle and Texas who are tied. Now the Jays are about to start a three set with the New York Yankees, three of their six remaining games against the Yankees over the final two weeks here. Yankees only six games out. I'm not saying it's very likely. I'm not saying it's even something we should be given more than a minute or two to. But if you're the Yankees and you've won six of eight, you're probably at a minimum looking at this series as a chance to be spoiler against an AL East opponent and, you know, slightly above the minimum thinking, hey, it's unlikely. But if we take six of six against the Blue Jays, we're right there, at least for wildcard four. And then, as we know, with Seattle and Texas, they have seven games left against each other. Seattle has three against Houston. So the AL West teams are going to start beating each other over the last little bit here in the days ahead. Uh, Houston's got two more with Baltimore. Seattle has two more with Oakland. Texas has two more with Boston. And then we get to that chunk of schedule where they all start playing each other uh, a bunch. Jays, of course, have the Yankees for the next three days, Tampa on the weekend, and then Yankees and Tampa back here 
in Toronto next week. The starting pitching matchups for this Yankee series lineup as follows. It's ace day. You say Kikuchi against Clark Schmidt. Tomorrow's Kevin Gosman against Michael King. Thursday, Jose Barrios against Garrett Cole. All three of those seven o'clock starts down at Yankee Stadium. So pretty loaded rotation matchup here, especially with Garrett Cole on, on the Hill Thursday. But the Jays have arguably their, you know, the, the three guys who've been best for them going in this series. It'd be interesting to see how Kikuchi plays in, in a ballpark like Yankee Stadium. Um, you know, obviously he's he's effective against lefties, occasionally suffers from the long ball, though he's mostly put that behind him until his last start. So that'll be Fascinating to watch. It'll be interesting to see what the Jays do lineup decision wise as well, because as we'll talk about throughout the show and and I'm sure throughout the week, uh, we're down to a part of the season where everything has to be merit based, certainly, but certain guys are hot that maybe you wouldn't expect to be playing every day. Uh, Certain guys are cold results wise with good process underlying. I'm thinking of David Schneider, who's O for his last 20, but it keeps sending laser line drives uh, all around the ballpark. And then, you know, one guy who is maybe out of playing time on recent merit, but has given you some pretty good time last year in the playoff run and uh, early this year's Whit Merrifield. So we'll kick all that stuff around and then there's you know of course with Kevin Gosman on the mound there's always the well do you want Dalton Varsho's defense back there uh, alongside Kevin Kiermaier and you and you play two of them the nice thing for the Blue Jays is is that the Yankees are starting three righties so you can get your lefties in there without worrying about that uh, too much they also have two lefties in the bullpen but Wandy Peralta is the only one you're you're super worried about I'm not sure you're all too worried about Nick Ramirez coming in and you can do the uh the platoon pinch hits and things like that. So some real freedom from John Schneider. think we'll get an idea of what he's thinking here uh, because every one of these games is borderline must win at this point. They obviously have huge swings in the playoffs. In addition to that, you are coming off an off day and you only have six days, six games before your next off day. You can go, you know, you're not going to pitch Romano and Hicks three days in a row probably, but the scheduled off day part of the season is behind you. You had an off day, you get another one in a couple days, um, benefit of playing a heavier schedule a little earlier in the year as you, you've got a couple extra off days on, on some of these teams around you in the standings, or at least one off day uh, on each of these teams around you in the standings. So John Schneider is going to be, or should be putting in a lineup there that is absolutely optimized maximum chance of winning that day's game every single day, regardless of playing time spreading around or rest and things like that. Something to keep an eye on for later in the week. Brandon Belt is eligible to come off the IL, I think Thursday, but maybe they they look for the Tampa series or, or something like that instead. Uh, if you are wondering about rehab assignments, this is the Buffalo Bisons final week of the season. So uh, minor leagues have mostly wrapped up. This is your last week to actually send a guy on a rehab assignment. A-ball Dunedin finished on the 10th. New Hampshire finished their season at at double-A over the weekend. We're going to talk to Jeff Ponce of Baseball America tomorrow to kind of, he's, again, we've talked to him a couple times, but he's based close to New Hampshire, so he sees that Fisher Cats team a lot. We'll kind of put a a bow on their season. There is some speculation Ricky Tiedemann could join Buffalo this week to get a a taste of triple-A before uh, the season's up, obviously, to to continue working on uh, his minutes or his minutes his uh innings as well to to make sure there's a solid base to build off of there i'd imagine he's arizona fall league uh headed as well so Deneen wrapped up new hampshire wrapped up 
The Vancouver Canadians also wrapped up on the weekend with a championship. The high A Northwest League is the province of the Vancouver Canadians now for the first time since 2017. They win a championship there. They went to the finals last year, led in all three games, but got swept this year. They come back and they win it all. We're going to talk to the manager of that team, Brent LaValle, who's been on the show before. We're going to talk to him in a few minutes here. Kind of recap that season. Look at a guy like Adam Mako, who started the season in a, in a bad, bad way and really turned it on in the second half. Check in on some of the prospects at that level. If you're looking at that AAA Buffalo team, kind of a fun week. I mean, there's six games left. They're four games out of a playoff spot. It's pretty unlikely that they pull it off. They do have Adam Simber there throwing. It doesn't sound like Simber will be back in the Blue Jays mix today. He's just kind of out of time, but he'll get a, a little bit of work with AAA Buffalo uh, this week. So those are the kind of things on your radar ancillary to this Jays series. Uh, more specific to this Jays series, of course, are these Yankees. We're going to talk to Bob Lorenz around 1035. He's pre and post game studio host at Yes Network. And then 11 o'clock, we'll look at the Jays side of things. We'll have Chris Black in studio for the hour, as we always do on Tuesdays. Um, we'll go over a lot of stuff. He got his hands on. We've hinted at it a couple times. I tried to get it out of Mike Petriello the other week, but Chris has managed to get his hands on a little bit of that bat speed data that we said uh, would be coming at some point in the future. Nothing we're drawing too many conclusions from yet, but it'll be interesting to see uh, a little bit there. We'll get into some of those playing time questions. How does the Kevin Biggio, Davis Schneider, Whit Merrifield kind of three guys for two spots or four for three spots if you include Dalton Varsho in that mix? Uh, see how that'll all shake out, and then we'll continue to tee up this series as well. It is obviously a very, very big one. We're down to 12 games here. Um, look, we kind of did the whole thing last week where it was the highest of highs and the lowest of lows coming off that Royal series, you know, felt like a bit of a wet blanket being like, yeah, they didn't play super well against one of the worst teams in the history of the sport. Uh, but you got three wins and your playoff odds were looking good. And, you know, to hear the guys down at Rogers center, tell it things were feeling very, very good. And then of course that Texas series plays out in, unbelievably bad fashion where we go from starting to maybe take a peek at what a wild card roster could look like to starting to take a peek at, Hey, what philosophical and process side stuff needs to be reevaluated within this organization. And then they sweep the Red Sox. We're kind of back to where we started, although certainly not as uh, I don't think anyone is going to get quite as excited as, or, or prematurely excited as they were after the Royal series, knowing just how difficult the final 12 games are. This is a Yankees team, by the way, that yeah, they haven't been super relevant to the playoff picture for a while here. And they have a negative run differential on the year. They're also a couple games over 500 and have won six of their last eight. So not a complete pushover. And again, a team that's going to be wanting to play spoiler, a team that is going to, you know, think they have a, a slight, slight chance at making a playoff push here. And sorry, I misspoke. The Yankees are six games out of a wild card spot, uh, not six games back of the Jays. They're seven games back of the Jays, six out of a wild card spot, but still close enough that they could reasonably look at this series and think, hey, if we if we only take two, if we only take one, this thing is probably done. You sweep the series, though. You can at least squint and get yourself into the playoff race here. This is... um an interesting dynamic of the new playoff format where there's the extra wild card spot and and no tiebreaker games and things like that it has 
it is unquestionably made the last couple weeks and these two weeks to come way more exciting, way more fun. So many games on the schedule each night matter in a way that they, they really didn't, you know, too many years ago. However, I do feel like it has had the effect of with the exception of if you're extremely good or extremely bad, it kind of has made the whole regular season slog feel a little less important where, yeah, there are, look, it's, I'm overstating it to some degree. There are in earnest three teams fighting for, for two wildcard spots or four fighting for two wildcard spots and the, uh, and the AL West title, the AL East title is still up for grabs. There are good races here. Uh, but I do wonder if, you know, the fact that the Yankees could be shaky all year, and then make a lot, uh, hard push in the last two weeks and be back in the picture is a negative externality of the new format. Or the fact that the San Diego Padres, who are five games under 500 uh, and have been so disappointing all year, are still, you know, technically in the race and could get really, really hot here. And it probably doesn't matter, but it might matter. I, I wonder how the league feels about it. I think they're probably pretty positive about it because all these games matter so much and so many teams believe they could they could do it here um but yeah it does kind of if everything comes down to the last two weeks well then what do we do for the last five and a half months i'm not sure how i feel about it really i'm still i'm still working through it here in year two and to be completely honest i'm probably changing my opinion on that based on how things go uh for your toronto blue jays who uh yeah they're right there as a reminder, they don't have the tiebreaker against Seattle or Texas. So they have to finish ahead of them. But in addition to the one game lead, they have Seattle and Texas have seven left against each other. So that means whatever the Jays do, there will be seven losses added to either Seattle or Texas's column down the stretch here. Three more added to either Seattle or Houston's column. So um, the Jays don't have to play perfect baseball from here. They're back in the position of controlling their own destiny. You win out, you're in, you're, you're feeling very good. Even if you go seven and five, I think you're feeling pretty good about things, but you're still scoreboard watching things like that. So here's what you do. You go into New York, you take a couple off the Yankees. Maybe you can learn some lessons from one of your farm teams because down in Vancouver this weekend, the high a ball Canadians won the Northwest league championship we've been keeping an eye on that team all year because they won the first half title they got to 80 wins they've been tremendous all year even as all their players keep getting promoted and they have to uh, make it work with new guys the manager of that team is brent lavalley we've spoken to him a couple of times throughout this season and last he joins us now brent congratulations on the northwest league championship yeah thank you blake and and thanks for having me and, and appreciate all the support uh, so you guys, you guys got it done. Three games to one against Everett. Um, man, I, I guess for you, and, I, and I've kind of, I've asked you about this a little bit in the past, but now that it, the championship happened and it happened in Vancouver, you as a North Delta guy, as someone who went to the Nat, I think I saw you posted a picture with your parents on the field after. How special was this weekend for you, not only to win the championship, but to win it at home, to win it at the Nat? Yeah, I mean, Winning the championship alone was just a, a testament to our organization, the players, the work, everything that went into it, um, and that—that's the main, you know, main part of the pride for me is just what we did as a group. And but you know, like you mentioned, to do it with your with your parents there, your best friends, your brothers, 
family, family, friends, um, and just in front of that crowd, like that crowd and that fan base is was just special. I mean, they hung around for a long time after it was over, and it was just a, a great scene. And, and it's just going to fuel these these players and this staff to you know continue winning and, and continue doing a great job for the Blue Jays. So for you guys as a staff, I know obviously at high A ball, there's a lot of roster turnover. I know Gabriel Martinez was with you guys in the championship last year, but a lot of the pieces had changed one championship series to the next. Um, how, how did it feel for you guys as a, as a staff and for those players who were there at this time last year to have gotten so close last year and then gotten it done this year? Yeah. I mean, experience is a real it's a real advantage. So those guys who would have ended with us last year, Gabriel Martinez, Desan Brown, there's so many others that uh, Devereaux Harrison, um, so many that I'm missing as well, but the experience of, of being in that situation last year definitely helped us this year. Um, and then what also helped was our, our low A team last year in 22, um, Kay Doty, Josh Kasevich, that whole crop of draft class uh they played in a championship series themselves with the Dunedin Blue Jays so just the experience of being in those games is uh you can't fake it and and that really was a huge factor in in going into you know being champions this year for us these are short series you know the championship in a six-team league is a is a best of five for the first half and the second half winners um you mentioned that experience is a is a big factor those guys coming up from Dunedin to to join you guys are you guys having gone through it last year when you think about a player's long-term development how much do you think a couple series like that can help just a guy getting to you know sharpen those skills he's been working on all year in such a high pressure environment yeah that's that's i mean the biggest reason and and probably one of the most important reasons to have successful minor league teams is to put these guys in those situations and the staff included put us in these situations that hopefully we get to on the biggest stage one day um and it's just you, you cannot replicate that type of stress. You cannot replicate that environment. Um, and the mistakes that, that come with being in the minor leagues, I mean, they're, they're amplified. They're, they're under a microscope at that level. And um, it's just, it, you, you just cannot fake that, that scenario and setting. And just really happy that for another year, our guys got the chance to, to play meaningful baseball into late September. So I want to ask you about a, a few of the particular players who, who are on this team helped contribute to the championship. Let's start with Gabriel Martinez because he was there last year and he had, you know, a, a pretty monster championship series here, a three hit game in the, in the clinching game, I think six or seven hits the entire series. He had had a bit of an up and down year relative to how he closed out last year. Um, how happy are you for him to get to kind of get that? end on this high note performance wise and how you know what impressions did you did you make of him throughout the season you know going through a a bit of a a tough year for himself but ending in a good place like that yeah um never not surprised by that by by gabby playing his best at the end um i've been lucky enough to coach him for three years in a row now going back to our our fcl days together in 2021 and He's just a grinder. He's a kid who has absolutely changed his body. He's, you know, he's continuing to work on a swing. The, the, the power and the damage is coming and uh, the athlete that he's becoming in the outfield, he's becoming a, a plus defender where a couple of years ago, I might not have said that about him, um, but just to see the work. And then he did get off to a slow start. It's just, he's 20 or the 20 year old Venezuelan kid 
who'd never been to Canada. He'd never been to the cold before. I mean, that is a real struggle. And, and you see it even in the big leagues, uh, you know, certain players struggling in April and May. Um, but yeah, he got behind, he got behind early, he got down on himself and a testament to how strong minded he is, how, how good our mental performance team is and, and just everyone just continuing to stick with him. Uh, we didn't let him slide with any, anything, you know, when he was struggling, we kept working, we kept holding him to high standards and, I mean, gosh, it's just so happy. It's so rewarding to see him enjoy himself and, and come through in those moments. And it's, it's just a sign of things to come, especially for that young man. Yeah, man, what a, what a way to head into your off-season work or AFL if he's headed there or whatever. Three hits in the championship clinching game. I, I'd imagine it doesn't uh, – you don't go into an off-season – any higher than that. Um, you mentioned the mental performance side of, of the staff, Brenton, someone who I know has spoken with Shai Davidi of Sportsnet about his use of it in the past is Adam Mako. Obviously, he comes over a lot of change for him as well. Maybe he'd been to Canada before having grown up here a, a little bit, but a big change changing organizations in the offseason. He has a really tough start to the season, and then down the stretch is unbelievable for you guys. Six of his last seven starts, he allows zero or one earned run gives you five shutout in the opening game of the championship series. Um, he spoke to shy Davidi about, you know, that, that change mentally and not trying to change what you're doing game to game. If the results aren't there and trusting the kind of larger picture and what you're working on over the course of the season. Um, how much did you see all of that kind of come together for Adam in the, this last month or two? Yeah. Adam's growth was absolutely huge this year. And, um, we got to watch, we competed against him last year when he was with Everett mm. and um, he, he returned to that form and even took two steps forward uh, with our pitching coaches, with our mental performance, just, just being under our umbrella of, of you know, the Blue Jay organization. Uh, he was a, he's extremely talented. He was very good last year with, you know, coming from Seattle. Um, I just think it was him just getting comfortable with us and, and us understanding who he is. And then, you know, you just, you, you kind of just mesh together the farther through this thing you get. And I think right around the all-star break, you know, he got comfortable. He was probably as confident as he's ever been. One little mechanical adjustment that I know I can see. And uh, the velocity started going up. The breaking balls got sharper. The command and the execution got better. And um, yeah, that's a, that's a young man we're going to keep our eyes on and and you might be seeing him on TV soon. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think so. And certainly here as Tay Oscar and Eric Swanson play big parts in their respective uh, wild card pushes here and maybe in the playoffs, uh, he'll he'll be an interesting name to, to track. Uh, another name you mentioned a little earlier who, yeah, closed the season with you guys last year and then started this season with you guys kind of as a, as a one-inning or multi-inning guy, transitioned later in the season to a proper starter's workload, Devereaux Harrison. Uh, I know he didn't have the sharpest end to his season in, in the, the championship series, but generally speaking, his entire season was a, a really nice step forward for him uh, from what we could see from afar, at least. And certainly that transition to uh, being a full-time starter. What did you like about Dev Harrison's uh, season and, and where he's at entering the off season? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely weren't expecting him to, to move into the rotation. I know it was something that was talked about if, you know, if certain people moved and um, he just took it and ran with it. Um, you know, I think he threw an all-time amount of innings this year, mm -hmm. all-time high. It was uh, it was spectacular, especially in the middle middle of the summer there, June and July. He was unhittable. 
Um, you know, he had a target on his back after those months, and you know, teams teams hit. You know, went into their at bats with a little more preparation. But uh, yeah, he can get you out in in many different ways, and uh, the competitor is what I think is going to make him and, and continue his success. He's he does not like to lose. He does not like to get beaten. Uh, no one you'd rather have out there with the ball in tight situation than him. Um, and, and he just kind of drives everyone to perform their best and, and to beat our opponents. And it sounds simple to say, but um, he brings passion and fire every day, whether he's playing or not. And um, yeah, it was, it was no surprise, but it was just one of those things where without expecting him coming into the season, become a starter, just what a, what a surprise there. And, and the amount of innings he gave us and, and quality outs he got, you know, up and down the order day in and day out. Uh, yeah, and hey, if he ha- if he hates to lose, well, good for, good for him. He's got the championship uh, now to head into the offseason with. Uh, one more on the pitching side for you. I, I know um, Eric Pardino is a guy who you went to in that championship clinching game. Now, you guys had a, a little bit of a lead or whatever, but I saw he hit 100 on the radar gun. For him, given everything he's gone through, over the last couple of years. And I don't know if you guys, I know he didn't play in the complex league, but he had, uh, uh, or he did, but, but only briefly as he was coming back from multiple injuries and things like that for a guy like that, still only 22, by the way, who has been through so much to just have a fully healthy season, to be able to contribute to you guys down the stretch. Um, where, where was Eric at throughout this year and how happy for him were you to, you know, get a moment like that in the championship game? No, it was, um, yeah, he worked his way into a role that if there was, if there was one inning and we didn't like the matchups for other guys, he, he can get both right-handed, left-handed hitters out. He's got a couple different weapons. You mentioned him getting up pretty high there with the velocity. I know I saw 98, um, a <laughs> hundred wouldn't be out of my, uh, out of the picture, but, um, yeah, I saw some high velocity from him. He was a starter back before COVID before a couple injuries. Uh, last year, you know, coming out of rehab, I think he was in our in our rehab for probably two seasons. You know, you add COVID into that, and it, it takes a little bit out of you. So, getting him back into the into the grind and, and getting him through the season healthy uh, was a huge goal. And then the velocity just kept climbing. He kept working with mental performance with our pitching coaches and strength and trainers, and um, just no surprise. He just, you know, good or bad, Eric always shows up. And and he did have some lumps early in the year, and uh, he just he kept showing up. He kept the same level head and just kept working. And and you know the velocity crept up from the 92, 93 to you know upper 90s. And uh, if there was a one inning role there, and we you know he was he was circled on our cards, and he was a guy we were going to rely on. And uh, I think he threw two shutout innings in, the, in his two outings in the playoffs, and really excited for where it goes for him. I know he's going to compete for Team Brazil here in a uh, in a big qualifier here this off season. So hopefully that fuels them to, to keep working working hard in the off season and just riding this momentum into his next year. And yeah, that's a that's another name for Jays fans to be listening to. Yeah, and who, okay, so ninety eight. My my spies in Vancouver may be exaggerated. We don't have the savant data for uh, for the high A games just yet. But someone someone had hey, he just hit a hundred. He just hit a hundred. But uh, ninety eight still still pretty damn good. Uh, Brent on the hitter side, you mentioned K. Doty and, and Josh Kasevich a little earlier. Uh, draft picks last year, they spend the whole season with you guys this year. You know we can. 
we can scout the stat line, but especially for guys like that who are coming in from college programs and reaching high A pretty quickly there, uh, you know, maybe the stat line doesn't tell us everything. When it comes to Doty and, and Kasevich, um, how were their seasons? I, I know Doty was, uh, you know, arguably the, the Canadians' best player in the playoff series there. How, how did the season go for, for those two recent draft picks? I, I, I can't even start to explain what, what the two of those guys mean to this team and this organization. Um, the, the level of expectations that they hold themselves to is it's contagious. Um, and there's no surprise that they went right into Dunedin last year, took that team to a championship series, came up here this year and did the exact same. There's absolutely no surprise. Uh, they hold their teammates accountable. Those two at work on the defensive side, as much, if not harder, than they do on the offensive side. Um, absolutely one of the best left-side infield I think you'll ever see in all of minor league baseball. Um, and just going to be an incredible incredible pair to watch grow throughout this org. And, and you know, I'm not having even talked about their base running or their or their offensive production yet. Um, they're, they're both still improving. This, their ceilings are so high. And... Um, just what what they brought to our team is you you can't you can't look at it. It doesn't show up on a stat line. But when two of your best players who produce the most and and keep your teammates accountable and do the dirty little things that um, you know nobody sees is uh, it's, it's a special combination. So um, absolutely, just so happy to have worked with them on the infield this year and got to watch them do their thing and um, another pair of prospects that. We should all be very, very excited to watch in the next few years. Yeah, and uh, hey, you know, you mentioned the the left side of the infield. I, I know uh, Doty bounced around a little bit. That's what everyone has to do in this organization, play uh, a whole bunch of positions, as your old pal uh, Davis Schneider has certainly learned as he's as he's climbed up the ladder and now made the majors here. Um, Brent, I'm curious. I know you're down in Florida now. So what is... What is the process like on your side and organizationally now? New Hampshire wraps up over the weekend. You guys have wrapped up. Buffalo will wrap up this week. Are the next couple of weeks down in Dunedin kind of a, hey, let's let's pool all our information together. Let's all get together and evaluate how the year went. Is that kind of where it's at? Does it shift right into off-season development plans for individuals? What What is the next little bit here for like? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're full steam ahead. Um, you know, our coordinators and our, um, you know, our front office have been ahead of this. So we've got the, the falls already planned out. I think we've got instructs going on right now for some of our younger players and some of, of the players who didn't get a full full volume this year because of injuries or whatever it might have been. So I know we've got that going on right now. Um, some of these guys who just wrapped up will be coming back in for almost some uh, off-season touch points to, uh, you know, set them forward and, and set them up for their off-season and, the goals they're trying to achieve there, but um, yeah, we've we've had exit meetings. We talked about plans for the off season for these for each player. Um, you know, reviewed every everything you could review. So these guys are all they're all set for their off season. Um, you know, we got some players going to Arizona Fall League. You got camps down in the Dominican Republic right now. So yeah, the season may be over, but the work doesn't stop. And and obviously our players will have time to recoup and and recover from the grind, but. Um, development doesn't stop and, and, you know, pushing this organization forward is a, it's a 365 day job. 
Yeah, I can, I can only imagine uh, at this level just how much goes into the planning of every single day of the offseason. Uh, before I let you go here, Brent, I did want to ask about Davis Schneider. I know that you've crossed paths with him uh, in the minor leagues. You see him kind of jump this quickly to the major leagues where, you know, he spent time with you guys in Vancouver last year. I think he spent 50 games with you guys, and now he's contributing at the major league level. Um, how happy for, for David Schneider are you? And did it, did it catch you by surprise that it all happened as quickly as it did Vancouver to Toronto in the span of, of like a season and change? Uh, no, with, with Davis, there's nothing surprising there. Um, he's in, incredible dude incredible person teammate everything you could ever want um and he absolutely worked his way to the big leagues um you know 20 pounds of muscle and a really tight and efficient swing uh, a great approach to the plate and then like you mentioned some defensive versatility and uh you know that's that's the recipe right there so not surprised by it extremely happy for him extremely happy for the message that that sends and shows the rest of our players in the minor league um, you know, these guys that we just wrapped with in Vancouver, they're not that far away. And, you know, uh, Davis worked his way there. He did it all. Everything he needed to do, he, he was ready to do it. And, and going back even to the COVID year and when we got shut down, I know I was a, a check-in guy for him just to hmm. stay in touch, see what he was doing. And um, so Davis and I go back there. I know our hitting coach in Vancouver, Ryan Wright, had Davis for two-plus years. Um, so there's a lot of credit there to our hitting coaches and especially Ryan Wright. Um, but no, Schneids is awesome. He's uh, there's probably not a, uh, anyone who you'd rather pull for, and and his teammates and everyone who's played for or with him have can probably uh, you know back that up. But no, happy for him and and just excited for these next guys and you know how close they actually are. And now they've got a uh, a championship on their well, a ring or, or whatever whatever you guys are going to end up with. Uh, I'm not sure how the hardware works out, but certainly a, a trophy and the experience of having won a championship in the Northwest League. Uh, Vancouver Canadians, they are the Northwest League champions. Brent Lavalley, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, and congratulations once again. Yeah, thank you, Blake. I appreciate it, and, and thanks for your support. Brent Lavalley, manager of the Vancouver Canadians, the champions of high a Northwest league, uh, having gone to the finals last year and coming up just short winning it this year. It's, I think the fifth time a Vancouver Canadians team has won a championship. They bounced around affiliation and league level a little bit in the past, but very, very exciting to see that super exciting to hear the reports uh, on a guy like Adam Mako, uh, a guy like Gabby Martinez, who, Ended the year so hot last year that we were kind of looking, hey, does he need a 40-man spot, Leo Jimenez style? This year hasn't gone that way, but he comes through in a monster way in the championship. Just a side note, too, if you're scouting the stat line and you bring up prospect stats, just keep in mind that the playoff stats don't count, so you're going to want to look a little closer at that, too. Adam Mack will be down one really good start and things like that. Uh, we're going to take a break. That was a lot of fun with, with Brent LaValle, championship manager. We're going to take uh, a pivot here, and we're going to start setting up this series between the Jays and the Yankees. Chris Black will join us for the hour at 11 o'clock. But coming up next, Yankees pre- and post-game studio host at the Yes Network. It's Bob Lorenz. He'll help us set up the Yankee side of Jay's Yankees as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Fun chat with Brent LaValle there in the last segment, but we're going to transition from the minor leagues to the major leagues. Very big series going down at Yankee Stadium this week between the Jays and the Yankees gets going down there tonight at 7 o'clock. The Yankees have been hot. Let's find out what's going on down there. Let's find out from the pre- and post-game studio host on Yes Network, Bob Lorenz. Bob, good morning. How are you? Blake, I'm doing great. How are you this morning? I am uh, excellent. I'm very, very excited for two weeks of every game being a must win for almost every team in the AL and the NL. I, I guess this is kind of the point of the new format, right? Everything feels very, very important down the stretch here. Yeah, I guess it is. Um, I actually like the new format, but I'm glad. What I am glad about is down the stretch, they are, they are playing the Blue Jays six times. So, That'll, that'll be a lot of fun because they can either somehow miraculously defy the 1% odds <laughs> of getting into the playoffs and get in or maybe just throw a monkey wrench at the Blue Jays' plans, which everybody always throws a monkey wrench at the Yankees' playoff plans, so why not you know pay it back? What what is the the feeling around the team right now? Obviously, you have to, you know, it, it's a competitive sport. You have to, even if it's not super likely, you have to aim for. Hey, we're only six games back, twelve games to go, six against the Jays. We can make the wild card push. Is that the attitude in the Yankees room? Are they thinking spoiler, or are they not thinking as specific as anything like that? I think they look at what the odds are and they know that it's pretty unlikely unless they basically win out that they're going to make the playoffs. Having said that, they've always had that mentality of just like win the game in front of you. Don't worry about a week from now. Don't whatever. Just win the game in front of you. So that's served them well pretty much over the course of the season or the past few years, actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's sort of that, that, they're playing both sides of the fence, right? Because they know they're pretty much not going to make the playoffs, but there's also that personal pride of let's finish strong. Let's make our record look better than what it really is. Cause we're a better team than what, we played like this season. I think that's sort of the mentality. Yeah. And they have a couple of, you know, there's a couple of things you could kind of hang your hat on. Hey, finish better than the Red Sox. Hey, make sure you're not the first Yankees team since 92 to finish under 500. And yeah, probably a little bit of, Hey, if you could stick it to the Jays on the way, uh, that wouldn't be the worst thing either. So that mentality and the win, win the game in front of you approach has done pretty well for the Yankees lately. They've won six of eight here. Uh, what has clicked for this group of Late because you look at the IL list and you, I, I don't think most would have thought, Hey, this is a time the Yankees might play their best ball. Right. I think so. There were times when young players came up that, you know, they were looking for that infusion of energy and it didn't quite work. I think it worked when some of these players were called up in September, certainly with Jason Dominguez. I mean, that was a reason to watch and, and be excited. And then of course he goes down and is going to need Tommy John or need surgery on his right elbow. So that was kind of a blow. Uh, but I think overall for the Yankees, it's they're playing well because the veterans are now hitting the ball. Well, DJ LeMahieu Stanton's a little better. Judge has been so consistent. Glaber Torres has been tearing the cover off the ball. That's what was missing when judge was out. And that's why they were losing so many games and got into the hole that they did. Because when Judge goes out, that's a big blow in itself. But then when the big boys who have a resume in the back of the baseball card that says they're really good players, we're not hitting, hitting up to their level, and I'll throw Anthony Rizzo in that who's on the I.L. Um, that's, that's why they got themselves in such a deep hole. 
and that's look obviously you go the way your stars go that's a, a pretty it's not universal but it, it's a pretty good guidepost um, but I do want to talk about some of the younger players on this team so Dominguez obviously got the headlines he comes up he, he has this really really exciting flash and then unfortunately hits the IL but I look at this Yankees lineup and the lineup that they trotted out there uh, Saturday for example and and Sunday actually had five guys in it who are 25 or younger and, and another one who, who just got back from injury in Everson Pereira. Um, how much are the Yankees looking at this stretch run here for some of these guys as an, an early audition for, for spots next year? Oh, it's a great way to put it. Absolutely. They're looking at all of these guys and giving them regular reps. Cause I think when you give those young guys irregular reps, you don't quite figure out what you have. When you give them the regular reps, you can kind of figure it out. Like, for example, Oswaldo Cabrera, he had made some swing changes that did not suit him well for the season, and that's why he was kind of up and down between the majors and AAA. Well, he's figured it out. He went back to the swing that got him to the majors and kept him in the majors last year, and now you know he just came off the six-game hitting streak. Um, uh, Oswaldo Peraza, Oswald Peraza is hitting great. He had a nine-game hitting streak that ended on Sunday. Volpe hit his 21st home run. So, yeah, a lot of the young guys are just kind of finding their groove. And I think to a point you made earlier, why are they playing like this? Part of it, it's it's going to sound weird, but they put themselves behind the eight ball so much with the record that they had and having to sort of win out and get a lot of help that I think when they realized that that was a lot of pressure, I think once they realized they're probably not going to make it, maybe the pressure was off. And it's just like, let's just play. Let's throw it out there. Let's finish up strong. Let's do what we do. And it's kind of changed their mentality. It's helped them. Another name that's on the younger side and has been kind of in the middle of the order uh, a bunch is, hey, we're going to talk a, a great mustache battle throughout the series between David <laughs> Schneider and Austin Wells. Obviously, the bat hasn't quite been there yet for Austin Wells in, in his first 10 games. But from what we gather from the prospect people and things like that, this is a guy who can catch a ball game, call a ball game, and there is a decent bat in there based on his minor league track record. What are the Yankees like about Wells and, and you know, what they're going to try to see from him here pretty much in an everyday catcher role? Yeah, they, they do like his bat, actually. You're right. It hasn't been up to what they had hoped, what they'd seen in the minors, but it's getting there. He's hitting the ball a lot harder lately. Uh, the, the actual catching metrics and everything, you know, I work with John Flaherty, a former major league catcher, and he's been watching him, and he's like, I'm really impressed with what this guy brings to the table. It's better than advertised. You can tell he puts work into it. And I said this to Flash. I said, you know, you almost don't notice that he's back there. Like, he does that modified catching stance where he puts the leg out and gets lower in the crouch. And some catchers do it. Not all do. But when he makes that move, it's quiet. You don't even notice it. And so it's almost a good thing, right, that you don't even notice that a catcher is back there because he's doing such a good job. And I think that's where Austin Wells is at right now. So, yeah he should be getting those regular reps to see how he factors in next season because you've got Jose Trevino and Kyle Higashioka coming back. And Ben Rortbent right now, too. But Higashioka has one year till free agency. Trevino's arbitration eligible. So you're going to have to figure out, do you move one of those guys and put Wells in? Do you make him the starting catcher or give him you know half the reps? 
I think he's earning a spot on the 2024 team right now. That's a, it's a good spot to be in if, if you're Wells. And yeah, it looks like he's going to get more or less, you know, maybe not against a, a tough lefty. So maybe we don't see him in there tonight, but he's been in there more often than not uh, since coming up. So you mentioned Anthony Volpe. I, I'm kind of burying the lead here when we're talking about young Yankees players. Uh, loaded rookie of the year field this year, so he's probably not going to going to get into that conversation with the year Gunnar Henderson and a couple others have had. But he is, you know, right. posting a 21 homer, 24 stolen base season. I know the batting average and the OBP haven't been quite where you where you'd want, but he just turned 22 years old. Um, and then you know, defense at a, at a premium position. Just how high are the Yankees and? I, I know how high Yankees fans are on Anthony Volpe because I'm on right. Twitter and I know how, uh, <laughs> how excitable that group can be. Uh, but bigger picture for a guy this young to have a season where, yeah, he showed a little bit with the bat. And then obviously with the, the base running and the defense, um, how high is this organization on, on Anthony Volpe's ability to be a core core piece moving forward? I think the fact that they made it clear that he made the team and was going to stay in the majors and get his reps, and then they kept that word and kept playing him, and he's played in almost every game they've had, speaks volumes about how they feel about him, right? Because you mentioned getting reps. He's getting regular reps. He's getting all these reps. He has the reps and grind of a 162-game season now, which none of these minor leaguers ever have, as you know. So he's getting so much good experience where I think they look at all the numbers and say, okay, it only goes up from here. So if this is his sort of his base to work from in his rookie season, you're going to, you're going to see a lot of growth over the next few years. So in this series, I will pivot now to the, to the pitching matchups. We're going to see Clark Schmidt. We're going to see Michael King, two guys whose roles have bounced around a little bit this year as injuries have dictated. We're also going to see Garrett Cole. He has six top 10 Cy Young award voting finishes in the past, he does not have one yet. He's right in the mix again this year. Uh, where is your lean right now? Do you think Garrett Cole, in your estimation, is the American League Cy Young winner? Yeah, every time he pitches, we talk a lot about this, Blake. And it's 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 his to lose right now, I think. I don't think anybody else has jumped out like, oh, that would be the main competition. There are some other good candidates, but he's number one in innings pitched. He's number one in ERA, or at least he's close. It depends what happened over the weekend, but um, he's number one in war by far. And all of those things play in to winning a Cy Young now, not necessarily the record. So yeah, he's absolutely, I think it's his to lose at this point with about two starts left. And then as for Clark Schmidt, the guy you'll see tonight, I mean, keep an eye on the cutter. Uh, he, Tried that pitch at the start of the season. He was toying with it, and it did not go well. It was just kind of flat, and it was getting hit out of the park. But he's figured it out now, and it's a real weapon. So he's probably, I mean, probably not even arguably their second-best pitcher behind Garrett Cole this season. And the Blue Jays have struggled with guys who throw four or five different pitches, even without elite velocity. You, It's funny. I know some teams and some players probably look and see, you know, a 97, 98 radar gun guy on the, on the docket and get worried about that for the Jays. It's been guys like Clark Schmidt who can throw a, Hey, a sinker around 93, 94, a cutter around 91, 92 and mix in a few other pitches there. So uh, a couple of good challenges there in between them will be Michael King and Bob 
quickly before I let you go here. Uh, Michael yeah. King's kind of gone reliever to, I guess you'd call opener, and now they're letting him go five innings sometimes. Do we right. consider him a starting, uh, like, are we considering him a starter the rest of the year, or are they still going to lean on this kind of deeper, well-rested bullpen that they have in a game like that? Uh, he's definitely a starter for okay. the rest of the season. They built him up. I think he's actually at full buildup now. I think his last time out, he threw about 80, 80 some pitches. So no, he's always wanted to be a starter, but he knows he had such value in that role of being a two or three inning guy out of the bullpen. I think he's a huge candidate for the starting rotation next season, because if you look at Severino, he's probably gone. Domingo Herman is probably gone. You got to make sure Nestor Cortez is healthy. Uh, they, Frankie Montas will be gone. He wasn't a factor this season, but he won't be in that starting rotation. And so he slots in really well there as a three or a four. And then Johnny Brito, if you've been watching him at all this season, you might see him in the series. He kind of slots in as maybe a replacement for Michael King in the bullpen next year, a guy who's a starter by trade, but can give you those two or three innings and be confident about it. Randy Vasquez too, you could throw in there. So, they look like they kind of have a king replacement, and he's earned it. He's pitched really well in a starting role so far. Yeah, I got the catch his last start against Boston, and that was electric. I think eight or nine strikeouts, only one walk, and uh, yeah, gave him almost five innings. So that'll be a, a lot of fun to see. Hopefully the Jays can uh, can figure him out. But uh, yeah, these are guys we're going to see this week, and we're going to see a lot of in 2024 potentially. Uh, Bob Lorenz, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. Enjoy this series. Will do. You too, Blake. Thanks so much. Bob Lorenz of Yes Network. He does pre and post game Yankee studio shows uh, down there. Good to get a look at this Yankees team. And look, that was, there was some optimism and positivity there. This is a Yankees team that's still above 500, despite having a million guys on the IL and literal hundreds of millions of dollars on the IL this year. They're going to be a fascinating team to watch this off season because in addition to, you know, just underperforming this year, Bob just mentioned all the pitchers that they have that are walking. Some of those walking off the IL and to free agency, uh, but still could be some some real turnover there. So guys like Clark Schmidt and Michael King these next two days, they're trying to make their early case for next year's rotation. There is a lot on the line for those guys and some of these young hitters, even if their six-game gap to the wild card feels borderline insurmountable here with 12 to go. A lot to play for there. And uh, as Joe Siddle is always fond of reminding us, the quality of your competition only matters if you're playing really good baseball. So a decent Yankees team with a lot to play for. Jays are going to have to play some good baseball this week. Let's take a break. We'll bring in Chris Black in studio for the second hour. We'll take a look at which Blue Jays are playing good baseball right now and how the Blue Jays may optimize these next two weeks. And yeah, maybe a peek ahead to what a wild card lineup would look like, but let's not count those chickens just yet. Chris Black joins us as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Joined now by the only guest who gets to request his own walk-in music or walk-up music, however you want to uh, frame it. It's Chris Black, producer at Sportsnet, at Down to Black on Twitter. Some good threads over the last couple of days. A lot of Blue Jays stuff to talk about. Chris, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I love that song. Hey, Rosetta, I gave you, 
what I like to do is not all the time explicitly request specific songs. I like to say, hey, I'd like to hear this band and give you the leeway to choose. And you chose a great Hey, Rosetta Tune there. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, that's that's what we do here. We <laughs> we customize the music to the guest best we can. Uh, or if it's uh, Friday last week and it's coming off a sweep of the Rangers, I just go absolutely unhinged with the music and play like Elliot Smith Needle in the Hay and uh, yeah, Poppy and, and a bunch of weird stuff. But that was a good one. Um, we'll see what you get at the eleven thirty because you're staying with us <laughs> for the whole hour. Um, okay, so we're gonna talk specifics about this series. We're gonna do a lot of Jay's specific stuff as well. But I want to ask first, we've joked around with this and then like less jokingly joked around about this with Mike Petriello of MLB.com. The bat speed and bat plane data exists out there. So for anyone who doesn't know, um, Baseball Savant and MLB Advanced Media for a while have been trying to develop stats and we won't be able to go back. This is not like some of the other new stats where we can retro sheet it and go back and look at stuff in the past. We'll only have data for this year and moving forward. But in addition to things like launch angle and hard hit and exit velocity and things like that, we'll now also be able to get a look eventually at bat speed and what plane your bat comes through the zone at. And what that'll tell us, or at least approximate a little bit is maybe where in your swing you were in terms of front of the plate, back of the plate. Well, I think we'll eventually get that data as well. But Chris here has gotten a little sneak peek at some of this bat speed data enough for one tweet in a Kevin Biggio thread, but I'm curious. I, I like you said you had a busy weekend. Oh, yard sale, kids had soccer, whatever. I'm imagining you like, pouring through the bat speed data while you're trying to do all this stuff. Yeah, you could dive in a ton. And it's funny because we talked about this last week, Petriello and the Statcast folks, like it's it's there where you can access it if you're if you work in this in this field, you can access it. They're not like pushing it publicly yet. I think for a lot of uh a few different reasons and we don't even know necessarily the reasons, but it is noisy. Like I mm-hmm. I do think like context matters with bat speed a whole ton like do you measure two strike bat speed should you i think probably you shouldn't like when i've looked at this or I, you isolate it as its yeah, own exactly. thing right uh, like yeah 100%. shortening up the swing and trying to play defensive yeah and like do you look at like is there a difference between because this is another thing like to be honest like your bat speed for an inside fastball will be different than it would for a breaking ball on the outside so, so it's like so depending on if pitchers pitch you more often with fastballs in your average bat speed might be faster than someone who gets worked away with breaking balls. So there's all sorts of reasons why like leaderboards might not make sense. And so that's why I'm definitely staying away from stuff like that. But having said that, I do think there's interesting, you can get some interesting individual data when looking at particular players. Uh, I know that uh, just to speak on those leaderboards, even though I said I would stay away from it, somebody posted a week or two ago, and it was the obvious JJ leaders. Cooper of yeah. Baseball America did kind of a, it, and he did an, some some interesting stuff with it. It's behind the paywall at Baseball America, so I don't want to give too much away without having JJ on. But yes, not only some of the leaders in bat speed, but how that correlates to exit velocity as well, and not necessarily in the way you you. I mean, in the way you might think, but it's always funny when like a Luisa rise comes out on the bad end of these things because you think he's a, a high bat speed bat to ball guy. And it's no, it's more about the plane and the levelness of the swing and staying back on pitches to, to be able to, you know, be defensive and make swing decisions and stuff like that rather than just, Hey, I have a high average cause I can get my bat to everything. 
Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the bottom of the list, it is guys like Arise. It's guys like Quan. It's guys like Whit Merrifield. So guys who want to make contact, get the ball, get the bat to the ball. Um, but it's also interesting because, like, tied for, like, I can't remember what the number was. It was, like, 188th on the list was, like, Freddie Freeman, Jose Ramirez, and some other great hitter. And what that probably tells to me, to your earlier point about you probably don't want to use leaderboards for this stuff until we get really familiar with the data is, well, Freddie Freeman and Jose Ramirez strike me as guys who can do both. Go up there, and, hey, if there's something on the inside part of the plate that I can pull in the air, I'm going to get around on that like crazy. Otherwise, I'm cool to sit back and hit a double to the opposite field alley like Freddie Freeman has done like 30 more times than anyone else this year. Yeah, 100%. And what was interesting for the Biggio point of view for that thread I did was – and we've talked about Biggio a couple times this year, was early in the year when, and we even talked about this in terms of he wasn't getting in the lineup a bunch, and it seemed like when he got into the lineup, he wanted to try and do damage. Yeah. Try and hit home runs, try and get the bat head out in front, try and pull the ball, put it over the fence. But Which he's historically done. He was one of the most he was the most shifted Blue Jay last year. We yep. thought he was the guy who could benefit most from the the lack of shifts, but he's kind of countered by like, yeah, I'm not gonna pull the ball that much anymore. Yeah, and like, but he wasn't getting on base the way he used to. His walk rate kind of went down, strike strikeout rate stayed up high. He was pulling the ball a ton, as we said. And as you looked at kind of how his year has gone, and as you look at how good he's been second half of the year, you see a month by month almost perfect decrease in his average bat speed and his average launch angle isn't right. They call it attack angle. Mm -hmm. And all it means is like the angle of your bat when it makes contact with the ball. Now what I've seen, and I wish we had data on this, it seems like that has more to do with where you're catching it on your swing. If you're catching it deeper, let the ball travel as we've heard a bunch of times from the Bo Bichette world. Um, it seems like that's what's happening to Kevin. He's not trying to get the bat head out, not trying to catch it out front. He's trying to catch it deeper. The bat speed is slowed down, but he's making more contact, making better swing, making awesome swing decisions. And we've seen, so it's just been an interesting to see the process, to know we've always been able to search chase rate and walk rate, stuff like that. But to see how bat speed and attack angle kind of plays into that stuff was really interesting to me. And I, I think bat speed data is going to be interesting for a couple different reasons. The way you just described that and the way we're kind of talking about, well, the plane of the bat and, and where you catch the ball, this is something where I think that, you know, you and I could sit down with Joe Siddle and put together a really good, like a, a little segment on, hey, Joe's showing us with the bat. Here's what the numbers say. Here's what that means in terms of what you're looking at uh, in the swing. And I think to your point, to use the Freeman and Ramirez examples to see Cabin's trend over time, these are numbers that are not going to be super predictive in terms of results, but very descriptive, especially if you can, you know, I think back to when I would do more writing, like to sit down with a player and try to dig at, hey, is what I'm seeing what you were actually going through? And you're not going to go to the player and be like, well, your bat speed's down one and a half miles an hour. But like, hey, has the change you've been making been about sitting back a little bit, waiting, making those better swing decisions, being a little flatter and more direct to the ball so that you can be a higher contact guy? And then hearing that side of it. And Mary, I think it could be really interesting descriptive data, just not probably evaluative data yeah i think you're right and other than maybe injuries yep. guys first couple guy has a banged up wrist guy has a banged up knee the, the the first couple games back look a little slower that kind of thing yeah we talked about that uh, as one of the places you could look into it if this is like 
Kevin's an interesting test case because he is he wi- he is willing to talk about this stuff a little bit. Um, but I do think we I had a moment or a couple of years ago I dove into some Adam Simber stuff and had a really cool chat with him where we talked about kind of it seemed like he was changing the way he attacked hitters, especially with I think it was his breaking ball where he literally was throwing sliders up in the zone mm-hmm. and, and he was one of the rare like righty slider to lefties who was pretty effective yep. Usually, that's supposed to be the way you neutralize a side armor right yeah. is stack the lefties and wait on the breaking ball and he was kind of the one guy who was prior to this year succeeding with that yeah and it like the interesting part was it, it was just so weird to see a guy throwing breaking balls up in the zone like intentionally and i kind of to see the data and to see what was going on and then to him for him to give like really honest answers about it and be like, yeah, that's totally what I'm trying to do. And Joe Smith told me that the best way to throw a breaking ball from my arm slot is let it ride up. And so it was really cool. And I feel like this kind of stuff could have the same type of, could lead to similar types of conversations. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be interesting to, you know, obviously this stuff change, like the equilibrium changes because people figure it out and they know to look for X, Y, Z once you, especially like the book doesn't get on you any out on you any faster than when you start having success, right? Like look at how quickly people started pounding David Schneider up in the zone with velocity after his hot start. And we'll get to some David Schneider stuff uh, a little later, but the Simber thing's interesting. You know, I, I think of a conversation I had with Matt Hag, the, the Bison's hitting coach about how, you know, the, the automated system, there are certain ways to game it with certain like pitch types and delivery angles and stuff like that. And Hey, Zach Thompson's cutter that rides that uh, comes in from the highest release point of any cutter that we have data for that stays in the the plane for the ABS system a little better than a cutter from a lower point or a, a flat four seamer from, from that point. And just the weird things like that, that you really do need the player perspective to dig in on what does this mean? Is it noise? Is it something you're doing consciously? And this is where, you know, when we have analytics discussions, um, you know, I, I think people can, I think reasonable people would assume we're not going into players and being like, here are a bunch of analytics. Do you agree? <laughs> um, but this is the kind of stuff where it gets really exciting to go in and then talk to a player. I had a great chat with Tyler Heineman uh, last week about the automated ball and strike system from the catcher's perspective. Um, and I talked to David Schneider uh, about that before, and we'll, we'll get into some of that a little bit later. Um, but yeah, this is where, you know, the bat speed stuff to me is like, I don't know. You can approximate bat speed by... How far the how hard are you hitting the ball? How good a, are you doing as a hitter? What type of hitter are you? But these kind of micro changes or split changes are going to be fascinating to pair with talking to players and talking to coaches about the the approach changes. So let's go a little deeper on Kevin Biggio. So the bat speed stuff is is one element of this. Looks like he's trimmed down the hey, I'm going to pull for power approach and try to pull in the air a bunch and it's been more of a i'll use all fields but this is mo this is primarily we think about making better swing decisions and letting the results fall where they fall his chase rate in september is nine percent i know it's only half a month but that is like like we talk about david schneider had the lowest chase rate in the minors or brandon bell has one of the lowest chase rates in the Kevin Biggio lately is making those guys look like Vlad senior in terms of swing decisions. So uh, what, when it comes to Biggio and this extreme, obviously we know we've known forever. He has such a good eye, um, but how much does that level of discernment help Kevin succeed in, in the role he's in right now? Yeah. You can just tell it's It's not the first time I've said this. It's not original, but you can tell 
when people are seeing the ball well. And even for Kevin, it, for any player, you can tell the difference between when they're seeing it and when they're not. It's a lack of a flinch when the pitch is coming. It's almost like... You know right away, yeah, even like something on the edge. right away, something right on the edge, something that would be a really hard pitch to lay off, but it seems like they see it, like, right away. Um, so it's... He just, when he's seeing it well, he is, I think the term I used online was just, he's spitting on pitches. Mm -hmm. And just, even with two strikes, even that nasty two-seamer running front door, he just, he can lay off, it seems like, any close pitch. And he's just one of, like, I said this before the year began, that I really liked the way the bottom of the lineup was being constructed. Obviously, the way the year has gone, I wish the lineup as a whole would hit a little bit more. But when you look at guys like Brandon Belt, now with Schneider, Biggio, Chapman even, who I know has swing and miss, has a very good eye. Jansen, like, they're guys who can grind yeah, at Ch bats. Chapman, it's not a chase issue. It's yeah, a it's contact in the zone issue. Yeah, yeah, it's swing and miss in the zone. But, like, Kirk even, like, they have guys through the lineup. They have two really aggressive guys, even three kind of at the top of the order. But you're fine with aggressiveness when there's damage corresponding with it. But this bottom of the order, like, you can just see – the idea behind it. And when a guy like Biggio is right, it just makes getting through the lineup really, really difficult. So I just, I like the way, even though the run producing hasn't been the way we'd hoped, you can see how these lineups would could work in theory and kind of grind through pitching staffs over the course of a series, over the course of a playoff series. Yeah, it's damage up top and then really make you work through the middle and bottom, uh, even though it hasn't always played out that way. And <laughs> despite the wins and the position they're in in the, in the wild card race right now, they they really are still struggling to put offense uh, together. Biggio's not been a problem in that. I, I want to stick with him a little bit because feels like we've done this a couple times now over the years with Kevin Biggio where the role shrinks or the role expands and he kind of... You know, this is what you'd expect when we say regression to the mean. You know, Kevin Biggio is a good example of like, yeah, we have four years of data that say he's a pretty good player, not elite, not as certainly not as bad as he looked in April. And then it levels out. But that is harder to manage the swings of, I think, for a guy who is on the is not in an everyday role. Vlad, Springer, Bo, those guys have ups and downs. Whether you like it or not, during the Valleys, those guys are going to be in the lineup every day and get to play through it. When it comes to someone like a Kevin Biggio, or we'll talk about Whit Merrifield, Dalton Varsho, those guys, um, it can be a little tougher because when Kevin Biggio is having the April he has, well, Whit Merrifield and Santiago Espinal are sitting right there to give potential reps to. Um, I guess just we'll continue to use Biggio as the example because it's been a couple of years of it, but... When it comes to not full-time guy, I don't want to say part-time because he's still going to end up with 100-plus games and I don't know, he'll, he'll, what's he at right now? He's at, yeah, 119 games. Uh, so he's going to be, you know, basically, or 99 games rather. He's going to play 100 games. So he's not a part-time player. But guys like this, when, yeah, we have to, you can't not react to the ebbs and flows. And there is another guy sitting around the corner there waiting for playing time who could maybe David Schneider can come up and get hot or Whit Merrifield can have the first half that he, that he's had. Do you find anything we can take from the Biggio lesson over the years of like, obviously there's not a monster sample size, but we know the organization likes him. They tell us why we know that he's a smart guy and talking to him and things like that. I guess just, is Biggio an isolated example because he's kind of a 
not a not a common player type or do you think we can extrapolate more from the Biggio example in terms of how we treat these kind of part-time players uh a couple things with Biggio I think there's one thing that's like changed kind not out of nowhere but the big change this year is his defense yeah. has been outstanding and in different positions and the arm has been better at third base even at second base we saw a turn he made on a double play that was outstanding um so I think the defense and the fact that he's probably the best base runner on this team, if not at least among the top two yeah. or three. Not the fastest, but in terms no, no, of no. like once you're on base, making the right decisions. Yeah, like that. Yeah, and we a lot of people talked about it. Just perfect base running on the weekend there when he scored that winning run. But I think that aspect to his play, um, it's always been in, in kind of the background why they stuck with him. But to be honest, I think the defense is literally like – kind of changed, uh, potentially changed the projection of what he could be and what he could, how much playing time you kind of consider him for going forward, especially next year. Um, his defense is really, really good. I'm interested to see what it would look like over the course of a full season with 400, 450 plate appearances. But I, I think that is the difference. Um, and to answer the the other question, like, I mean, this is, and again, this is going back to something we've talked about, but like, this is how you, to me, this is how you manage a modern roster of, it's not just your nine guys. It's not just. Unless you're the Braves. Yeah, unless you're the Braves and you just hit home runs all the time. Um, to me, it's about having contributors one through 13 or whatever it is. Like one thing I was planning. One through 12. One if through you, let's 12, be honest about how they've handled the 13th spot. The 13th spot earlier in the year, for sure. They're starting to use. I mean, full, Spencer Horowitz sat there right. for a, a, like. There are a lot of opportunities yes. to use that, I guess, 14th man now. But, yeah, yeah. anyway. Um, so, yeah, like I just – the one thing I was going to do this weekend, but I didn't when I was busy with soccer games and yard sales, was I'd love to look at the top or all the playoff teams or perhaps playoff teams and look at their top player by wins above replacement. I would guess that whoever it is for the Blue Jays, whether it's Chapman or Bichette, would be among the lowest of those teams in terms of leading their team. And I think that, and I would suspect that, you know, the ninth spot on each of those teams or the 10th spot, you know, for the Jays would be quite high. So I just, I like the idea of, and as you said, working around the ebbs and flows of your kind of eighth through 12th guys, like that's, I think that's how you're supposed to do things and putting themselves, putting those guys into the best positions to succeed maximizing platoons maximizing the types of pitches they're going to see um yeah i just think they've they've handled that in a good smart way and we we like to get upset at the way certain hitters are performing and not reaching their potential but i think there's guys and success stories in the way they've deployed certain guys that kind of speak to putting them in the right spots. Yeah, and that's an interesting study, right? You kind of graph out where are the wins above replacement coming from, and obviously a better team's just going to have more of them to distribute than a, a lesser team. But it is, a, a, you know, and we, we've we heard stats over the years, thanks to Chapman hitting seventh for most last year, Kiermaier hitting ninth for most of this year. You know, the Jays do get more seven, eight, nine than than most teams, even if it doesn't always uh, feel like that. So with Kevin Biggio then, um, I guess there's also an element, and I know that this is... This is part of it, right? We got two hours a day to fill on here. Fans are thinking about the lineup every day. There is any time a guy is playing really, really well, like Kevin Biggio has since the all-star break, you know, seventh in the American league in OBP or whatever it is. There is an obvious case to be made. We'll play him more, play him every day. 
But there's also an element, and this is more on the pitching side, the Ross Stripling. Do you let him go through the order a third time? Or is he having success because you're not putting him in those lesser spots? Um, where do you come down on that when it comes to Biggio specifically, but also just in general, like, hey, this guy's playing really, really well. But a part of that could be that you're absolutely optimizing his role right now. Yeah, he's been close to every day, it feels yes, like. Yes, yeah. he's just the guy we're talking sure. about. and For sure. I, I, I do think the later in the year, I think, sorry, to put it the other way, the earlier in the year, the more you are kind of leading towards, hey, let's put everyone in the best places to succeed. Whereas late in the year here where it's like, let's just put in who's producing and try to win games. Um, but, like, and I talked about this on social today, like, I don't think just because Whit Merrifield's obviously been cold lately, but you're not shutting the book on him. He's going to help you win a ball game at some point in the next couple of weeks. Even if it's a swinging bunt on a day he's yeah, 0 for 5 and probably should have been pinch hit for at that point. <laughs> yeah, like you're not closing the book on him because he carried your team. He hit 400 for like a month in July. Um He's experienced. He's a veteran. So he also I, was really, really bad in late August, early September last year, and then had like a 1.2 OPS over the final two weeks of the season. Yeah, not did. not saying that's repeatable, but like why you don't close the book on a guy. And as we've said before, like this is a sport of peaks and valleys. Even they can be, and they can flip on a dime. Where even it doesn't seem like it's happening. Um, we talk so much about Bo Bichette's hot streak to end the year last year. The part that doesn't get talked about a lot is like. He had like a 50-game valley that came right before that peak that was among the worst stretches of his career. So it can switch. It can flip just like that. So you don't know who's going to contribute. And I just think like that's why you have multiple guys. And that's why I think it's good that you have guys like Merrifield, Biggio, Schneider. You've got options. And come mm -hmm. playoff time, it's going to be, hey, who's who's putting us in the best possible position to succeed and knowing that you're also going to use those one or two guys on the bench as well at some point during that game. Uh, okay, last one on Biggio before we take a break and do some of this playing time stuff and optimal lineup stuff. Uh, talk a little about Vlada and David Schneider as well. But Kevin Biggio, two more ARB years. He, may, he makes $2.8 million this year. So coming off of this season, his ARB number is not going to be too high. Certainly enough that he's going to get tendered and they'll probably work out a, a one-year, if not a two-year deal. Given what he's done, given that the Jays have holes at third, second, left, and DH, we assume. Are you penciling Biggio in for one of those roles? Are you penciling him in as kind of 10th man who will fill a bunch of those gaps? Or do you just kind of see what falls in your lap? Uh, yeah, I think you see what falls in your lap. Like, I think you're very confident and very happy based off of what he's done over the last couple months. Um, he's definitely going to be in the mix for those spots. But until you know, like, is Chapman gone for sure? Or is he coming back on a one-year deal? A couple or people deal? have asked yeah. me about the qualifying offer. And I'll say this. I would be flabbergasted. My gas would be completely flabbered <laughs> if the Jays did not issue him a qualifying oh, offer. Because yeah. one year of Matt Chapman around 19 or 20 million, whatever it you're ends fine. up being, you're fine with that. And if you... I... I a Scott Boris client signing the qualifying offer at age 30 when it's a weak free agent market. I, I don't see him signing that, but you're completely fine with it if he does. So, uh, yeah, I don't yeah, he'll be, I, I yeah, see that being a, I would a thing. I would 99% sure they're giving him a, a qualifying offer. But, I, I, but you also don't know, like, who's coming back, who mm -hmm. isn't. 
what do these young kids do? Do they the like Aralvis' season as much as the numbers or Barger's season as much yeah, as the numbers, etc.? Yeah, maybe one of them goes insane at spring next year. So you don't know until you know, but you've got a ton of options. And just, again, a guy that does all the little things well, um, a guy who defends well at multiple positions, a guy who's a very good base runner. Yeah, he's going to be in the mix. He's going to get playing time next year. But it's just it's good to have that type of guy when you do have so many unknowns isn't the right word, but like you do have a lot of variance kind of tied into those mm-hmm. spots next year. So to have someone that you can kind of depend on and know he'll give you a good at bat to me, that's valuable to have, but I don't think you're locking him into any role yet. And the positional versatility kind of when you're, if you're picturing a big board where you've got all the guys on magnets and all the free agents over here, you know, uh money ball style, I think they use the whiteboard, not magnets because they couldn't afford them. But uh, still, when you're picturing that, he's almost like in a rover position of just like, I don't know, there's a 10th guy, like slow pitch <laughs> style. You get a 10th guy, we'll plug him we'll plug him in wherever, um, and that, which is a, ni- a really nice luxury to have yeah, and a, another and, part of why they like him so much. Yeah, and these modern teams, like a lot of these teams, like those are the guys they want. And it's not like, to me, we always talked about the Zobris type and a guy who's playing 140. To me, teams really want like guys like three or four of these guys who will play 90 games or play 100 games where you can just move them around, be incredibly flexible, maximize platoons, all that stuff. So, yeah, I just I'm – I'm a big Bijou guy. I have been since he came up. And it's, as I said, like to have the start he did where he was hitting sub 200 at the break and now he's, you know, to have over 400 on base second half, it's just – it's been good to see and he's – Really, really seeing the ball well right now. Uh, here's an example for you. The Rays have seven guys who will finish the year between 300 and 450 plate appearances. Yeah, that's and that's what that's they want. not at the top. Obviously, they've got their everyday guys: uh, Arozarena, Diaz, and Paredes. But every and Josh Lau. Uh, but Josh Lau or Brandon Lau? Which one's Lau? Which one's Lau? Oh man, I this never is going to mess me up in the playoffs so much. Ask an on-air guy. I, yeah, the, I don't need to know that. I, if I were doing the games, if I was prepped for Tampa today, I would know which is Lau and which is Low off the top of my head. Um, I think it's Josh Low, Brandon Lau. Anyway, so they have seven guys who are kind of like, yeah, even even Paredes, who like has had a monster season, is going to finish with thirty home runs and maybe a hundred RBI. Like, still sits regularly for them. Yeah, and they that with the Rays, you always wonder how much is about like keeping our numbers down yes. and stuff like that, which is a, a lot cynical of it, probably <laughs> of, cynical way of looking at it. But yeah, like to me, that kind of flexibility and that kind of, that's what you want using your entire 40 man. That's what the Dodgers do so well. It's what the Rays do really well. And I think it's what yeah. the Jays have done well this year too. Yeah. The Rays would have, everyone's having a disaster Alec Manoa season. The Rays would have been like, no super <laughs> two, no super yeah. two. All right, let's Build go. That stadium. Build let's that stadium. go. Yeah, <laughs> I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> when it comes to that, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll we'll use Biggio as a jump off point just to talk about some of the lineup decisions facing John Schneider these next two weeks because it is six games in a row and then an off day and then six games in a row and then an off day and maybe infinite off days if you don't make it. So the resting guys, the, Hey, do you need a day down stuff? It's off. You're maximizing the lineup every single day. Now we'll take a look at what maybe that looks like. We'll take a look at David Schneider's 0 for 20 streak where he's just lasered the ball all over the place. Uh, and some bad luck he's actually gotten uh, that I kind of had a theory about when he came up. We'll we'll dig in on that a little bit more. Take a look at Vlad's kind of minor hot streak and tee up this Yankee series. Chris Black stays with us as Jay's talk plus continues on the sports radio network and sports at 360. 
fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Chris Black still with us, producer at Sportsnet at Down to Black on Twitter. So we did a lot of Kevin Biggio, or you want to comment on the music first? You you looked ready to go. Oh, no, I just lo- I oh. love hearing it. I, yeah. I haven't heard this song in a long time. You didn't leave me a lot of options when you asked for this album because there's not a lot without cursing ad-libs right off Correct. the top in Correct. songs. So, But 1996 hip-hop is like peak grade, grade eight, grade nine, Chris. Okay was really leaning into it, Mob Deep, like all that. Again, wouldn't get, allow you a lot of options. I thought about asking for something from them, but yeah, just good to always uh, step back into the time machine. I saw Nas with Wu-Tang last summer, and I couldn't believe how good he still was. Oh, he's so good. And apologies to the people listening on podcasts for the music talk, but deal with it. It's <laughs> it's like 30 seconds a segment. Yeah, uh, yeah. All right, so last segment, we did a lot of Kevin Biggio talk, a lot of where is he at right now? Let's play around with some new data. Uh, the decisions that John Schneider and the Blue Jays have to make over these next 12 games and however many more games they may get after that will involve Kevin Biggio because we can assume some things about what the lineup's going to look like day to day. They have told us by the decision-making they've made so far that, yeah, Matt Chapman's going to be in there in the bottom third. Kevin Kiermaier is almost certainly going to be in there and let's pencil him into the nine hole. We know Kirk's going to be in there somewhere because Danny Jansen's done for the year unless they go on a deeper playoff run and then who knows. And we know that Springer, Bo, and Vlad are probably going to be the top three. At this point in the season, even if they slumped, I don't know that they're changing up. Do you think that those assumptions about the lineup, Springer, Bo, Vlad, one, two, three, Kirk somewhere, Chapman, Kiermaier in the bottom third. Do you think those are fair assumptions to yep. go with to start? Yeah, that's your like that's your blueprint for how you and that leads you to the decisions that you need to make. And I know not everyone will agree with those, but we're basing this on the decisions they have made so far and what they've shown us with those. Um, you can make the case that Matt Chapman shouldn't be in there every day. They have told us whenever he's healthy, he's almost always going to be in there. So that leaves three spots. That leaves second base, left field and DH open game to game and you would have Brandon Belt could be back later this week we'll see and then you have David Schneider Dalton Varsho Whit Merrifield Kevin Biggio. Kevin Biggio and yeah I mean they and Siller get like I don't know that Spencer Horwitz and Ernie Clement are getting in there a ton at this point although they both played well enough when, when given the opportunity um okay so let's let's hone in on those three and I know you made the case on Twitter earlier today very early Twitter thread. By the way. <laughs> um, you think at least with Ke- Kevin Gosman on the hill, which would line up for game 162, or ideally if you have a spot locked up, game one of a wild card series, you want Dalton Varsho in there for the defensive value. Personally, yeah. I, I understand if I understand the arguments for not, um, but if it's a righty on the hill for Minnesota or Tampa or Baltimore, whoever that team might be, um, and again, assuming the Jays make it, but it seems more likely than not after the last few days. Um, yeah, to me, it's Varsho um, in left just because we've seen the impact that defense has had on Kevin Gossman's season. It's helped quite a bit, um, even as some of his peripherals have even gotten worse year over year. Um, his stuff 
and his his ERA is still a little bit better, or at least it was before his last start. Um, and we saw in his last start with Varsho on the bench how outfield defense kind of hurt him. Cost him a couple runs. Yeah, cost him a couple runs. Um, so to me, if it were me, I would have Varsho in there regardless of if it's a righty in there. Um, Varsho's in left for me, so then it becomes a conversation around second base and DH for Schneider and Biggio and Belt. Or Schneider, Biggio, and Belt, yeah. So uh, just a note here that... If the Jays make the playoffs, they will play one of Baltimore, Tampa Bay, or Minnesota. The only left-handed starter that either of those three teams uses is John Means. And is John Means a, a wild-card series starter if you're Baltimore? Is he a, a bullpen option? I mean, he's only been back for two appearances, and he's looked good, but who knows how they handle that. So you are, and this week, by the way, if we're looking at um, actually the last 12 games of the season here, Yankees and Rays, we know Carlos Rodon is not starting in this series. He would be the only lefty they face over these last 12 games. So the Jays are going to have a runway here where they might not see a lefty for these last 12 games plus the playoffs or, or at least the wild card series. So we can at least think through, I think it's safe to think through these iterations as if it's a righty on the mound. They're not going to see one and if they do see one, it's it's uh, only one until at least the ALDS. Yeah, and I think the the other interesting thing to consider is Biggio. I don't think has played any left field this year. Yeah, he's only, he's only he only has a couple innings there. Period. Yeah, I think he's only played in right field primarily this year. Schneider has maybe like fifteen innings or so in left. Played a lot at AAA, but played still. a lot in AAA. But do you in game one of a three game playoff series? How secure and confident would you feel um, with someone with that limited experience out there? Um, so the only other guy other than Varsho with extensive experience out there this season is Merrifield. Um, but again, he hasn't been swinging the bat well. So I think it's a tough it's a tough decision. We know Varsho hasn't been hitting a ton this season. Uh, but for me, the defense would be the trump card in that spot. Varsho is also, if we go back to August 1st as a, a cutoff date, it's I, actually August 4th is the cutoff date because I just picked since David Schneider came up as the cutoff. Uh, Dalton Varsho has hit better than Whit Merrifield over that stretch of time. Obviously, there are some matchups where he does not look particularly good in. But if you're comparing bat to bat with your left field options, there's that. Okay, so we'll pencil in. It's almost all righties. We'll pencil in Dalton Varsho into left field. So you've got your optimized outfield defense. You've got Chapman, Bobachet, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. So we've got second base and DH then between Belt, Biggio, Merrifield, and Schneider. That's uh, Let's leave Belt out of it for now because we might not see him until the weekend. We, we don't really know. We're almost out of time for rehab assignments and things like that. These next couple games... Are you rotating it around? What what are you doing? And it's righty, righty, righty. My guess would be in the last couple of weeks, they're going to give all these ty- all these guys opportunities and to see how they play. Like I, to me, and I wrote this online, like to me, these last two weeks, the most interesting subplot beyond do they make the playoffs and where are they slotting, who are they playing? To me, the most interesting subplot of these last two weeks of the Blue Jays season is Biggio, Schneider, um, Merrifield. And Merrifield, how are they playing? How's it lining up? How's it slotting? Like, if Belt comes back at some point, you'd have to think he's going to be DHing and hitting. Well, especially cleanup. with nothing but righties coming yeah, up. Yeah, right? just a veteran. And that's why they got him. Like, so it really is like three guys for one spot. And I, I know the easy inclination is to write Merrifield off. I wouldn't do that. Like, they, 
I think they respect his experience. They respect, we've said, you can flip on a dime, you can get hot in the matter of a couple days. But to me, just watching those three guys, and again, like, our team's figuring Schneider out. Is it bad luck? Is it getting burned by the umps? Like, to me, watching, and maybe even more so than those three guys, watching what Schneider does over these last couple weeks is maybe, like, top of the line subplot for the rest of the year. So let's go into David Schneider a little bit then. And, and I think that that's well said, and it's going to be something fascinating to watch. We'll probably break it down every show the next day. Uh, you know, there's also, you obviously don't, you don't manage this way, but it's a small tiebreaker of who do you like better as a bench piece who can come in in a certain situation. And if you don't like, you know, if you don't see a scenario where you'd use Whit Merrifield off the bench, but you could see a scenario where you use Biggio, it's a little weird because then you're giving an extra plate appearance to a guy you're saying has less utility, but who could you use when? I really like the idea of, and we haven't, I don't even know if we've seen this yet this year, but Schneider being on the bench to potentially pinch hit for a lefty somewhere where they bring in a tough lefty mm-hmm. to get a guy like Kiermaier out or to get somebody, maybe even Varsho, but just that's a bat that, you know, he's going to swing out of his whatever, and he's going to swing hard. He's going to try and do damage. Like that could be a really valuable bat off the bench in a big moment. And then, uh, yeah, you also have to, uh, yeah, you then have to consider, are you doing that only if you're down because you don't want to downgrade the defense if you're, if you're up? Um, you know, do you think about structuring your, if, hey, earlier in the year, we talked a lot about structuring your batting order so that your three lefties were separated, right? Three, six, nine, say, Belt, Varsho, Kiermaier, because you didn't want to give the opposing manager an opportunity to use a lefty. Are you more comfortable with that when you have righty options you trust off the bench versus your whole bench being light hitting lefties. Like, like I think the, the bench at the start of the year was like Biggio, Espinal, Nathan Lucas. Like it was not a, there weren't a ton of, options. and you weren't as confident with Kevin Biggio then as you are now. Yep. Um, okay. So with David Schneider, obviously tremendous start, best start over 25 games in major league history by OPS. Um, there's a lot to like, he's over his last 20 in that stretch. He hasn't taken a walk. He's been hit by one pitch. There have been some, including in that extra inning game on Saturday, absolute rockets that just found their way to gloves. He in three consecutive plate appearances in huge leverage spots, not in this order, but lined a hard one to left. That was tough to catch lined a hard one to center. That was tough to get lined a hard one to right. That was tough to catch all hit too well to advance to the runner. Um, I guess what do you look? There's obviously not just bad luck in an over 20 stretch. You're, you're doing some things. You're having some strikeouts. Uh, what do you make of that six game stretch or so for Davis Schneider in terms of that, is it catching up? Is it a little bit of bad luck? Is this only a blip we're noticing because he was so hot before? A 20 play appearance is not a ton. No, not at all. And someone with his profile at the plate in terms of takes a lot, takes a lot of close pitches. Also, when he swings, he's going to swing hard. He's going to try and do damage, and he will swing and miss. A guy like that is going to be prone to peaks and valleys and kind of sudden peaks and valleys. So I, I don't think this is super unexpected. I, I think we were all waiting for this kind of come back to earth moment. Um, but that doesn't, you know, I never, I, none of us um, thought he was going to be a thousand, a thousand OPS guy, let alone a 1300 OPS guy. So um, this was expected. I do think there is an element to when you're extremely patient, the way he is, the way Kevin Biggio was, when he was younger, like you're going to get burned by umps. And sometimes umps take more liberties 
with a young player up at the plate than they do with veterans. Um, I looked into, you know, we do uh, framing numbers for catchers, the amount of strikes they get on the edge for pitches that are taken. Schneider's like top five in the league in terms of those pitches getting called strikes on him. Um, it's tops on the team. I think it's, wait, I got it here, uh, 57%. So it's it's super high. And it's also, it's second highest in the league if you only consider pitches on the edge that are out of the strike zone. So pitches near the edge but out, that's getting called strikes at the second highest rate in baseball. So he's getting burned um, by close pitches. But also, like, there's a bit of an element to knowing when you're going to get kind of screwed a little bit by the umps. And maybe you do need to change your swing decisions a little bit. Incredibly hard to do in the moment, split second, changing. Like, how do you change your MO, especially when you're coming from Buffalo and the automated strike system? Like, do you need to kind of expand your edges a little bit? So, Speci- I- And I'm thinking specifically high. So my theory coming with Schneider coming from the ABS system, and I've talked to people down there. I asked David Schneider about it a little bit. I asked Heinemann about it. And, yeah, the way that the rule book and the way they do the automated or challenge system defines the upper part of the strike zone is noticeably different from how human umpires call it. Like we have, we don't have that granular data from the ball strike stuff from AAA, but everyone seems to agree on that. They just two weeks ago changed how they define the upper part of the strike zone because they were saying, look, the walk rate went too high and pitchers aren't getting enough of these high strikes. And then, yeah, you look at David Schneider and he's basically lapping the league in incorrectly called, incorrectly called by the the system, um, you know, strikes and they're almost exclusively up in the zone. Yeah, I just big, big picture with Schneider. I like his swing decisions. I do think, like I said, peaks and valleys are going to come, but I like guys with the profile like he has extremely patient around the edges, extremely aggressive in the strike zone. Yeah, there'll be some swing and miss, but when he makes contact, there'll be damage. He'll hit the ball hard. If they go at guys, he he's also a guy, even though he hits the ball hard, he's not a 30 home run guy or a four, like he's not that guy. So there are going to be times and weeks where those balls are just going at outfielders or lining at infielders. And you are going to have an O for 15 or an O for 20. So these peaks and valleys are going to come, but that's why you've got two or three different guys who could potentially slot into the lineup. Okay. A couple quick hitters before we go here. Um, Vlad had a pretty good weekend and, uh, you know, Homer did three straight games. That was the only time he's done that in his career, except for a stretch of May, June, 2021, where he hit like 19 home runs in 45 games. And it felt like he was doing, he had three such streaks in like a seven week span in 2021, which is crazy. Um, Look, obviously we we bit on the pump fake a little bit in the Royal Series with some of that turn. Um, did you did you like what you saw from a process side? It, was it just better results? What what did you see from Vlad's hot streak? I'm liking what Vlad is trying to do. Um, he's tr- you can tell he's really trying to change his aggressiveness. Um, his he's as patient as he's been this month. Some of that is quality of competition, but he's been as patient as he's ever been. Um, in September, really like that. Um, I was surprised that five times on base was a career, like the first time he's ever done that. I would have thought in 2021 he would have done that a whole bunch of times. So to see that is encouraging. Um, He can do things that nobody else can. And I'm convinced that, you know, we always say great on a curve, 
and we always give that preamble with him. But I'm also convinced that just generally, and I include myself among this, like we might be a little too tough on that guy sometimes. And it's still, it hasn't been as good of a season as we would have thought, but he can, he can carry the team and he has carried the team over the last however many days. And his offense can do that. Um, You'd like to see some of the other things get better, the base running, all that stuff. But we have seen the defense improve. But just overall, it's been at the plate, it's been a noticeable difference in how patient he's trying to be. And I think just overall, the team has been like that as well. It seems like it seems like the team is trying or at least swinging a lot less. They've been really, really patient uh, this month. So maybe, again, maybe that's quality of competition. Maybe that's easier to lay off breaking balls out of the zone against the Kansas City Royals than it, or the Colorado Rockies <laughs> than it is against the Baltimore Orioles. But I like the process for Vladdy, and I like the process overall for the team, even though they're not scoring a ton of runs right now. Clark Schmidt, Michael King, Garrett Cole. Uh, in this series, I know, uh, by the way, my t- the t- analytics top sheet is not in my inbox yet. I don't know what you've done with your morning. Uh, where Where is my little breakdown? Um, the Yankees have won six of eight. They're technically only six back of a wild card spot. Um, you know, you're seeing the same team for six games in a short stretch of time. We've only got about three minutes left here. But uh, what are you looking for in this series from the Yankees side of things? I like- Other than Austin Wells' mustache. Your, yours is gone, by the way. It is gone. Um, my wife, not a fan. Um <laughs> I like the Clark Schmidt matchup. Speaking of Vladdy, he has demolished the ball off of Schmidt in small samples. I think he's got five balls in play, and he has hit them hard quite often. Um, King is an interesting matchup on tomorrow, I guess it is. He has changed the way he pitches to lefties. Um, He's very much a sinker slider kind of guy or sinker breaking ball. But, yeah, transition to the rotation, had to mix it up a little bit. Yeah, and against lefties, he's doing a bit of a Barrios thing where it's kind of any of his four pitches you might see. So that'll be interesting how guys like like Kiermaier and Varsho fare against him. And just Cole, have there have been some epic matchups against Cole Guerrero we've seen before. Um, He's got the Cy Young on the line, too. Like, yeah. three starts left, probably. Yeah, the Vladdy, the two home runs against him. My favorite pitch, though, to be honest, from that game where he hit three home runs might have been, I think he was down 0-2 against Cole, and there was, like, 97 or 98 outside corner painted, and Vladdy went down the line against him. This was 2022 early, I think, and Cole literally, like, tipped his cap to the guy and was just like, okay, I don't know how to get you out. But the other thing about Cole... Kevin Biggio, not great numbers in terms of average. Cole will strike him out, get him out from time to time. But Biggio has done damage against Cole in the past. A couple of home runs and a double. So I'd be interested to see if Biggio gets into the lineup. He doesn't always go up against high velo guys, guys who can work the top of the zone. But he has done damage against Cole in the past. Clark Schmidt gets it started tonight, and with the exception of Vlad, a guy, a type who has given the Blue Jays some trouble. 91-92 cutter, 93-94 sinker, sweeper, curveball, changeup. I'll, I'll locate him in a couple different spots. Uh, it's a it's a thinking man's pitching matchup, but to our, or the Schmidt side, Kikuchi has been more of a thinking man's pitcher but also he could just lean on the stuff and just gas it in there uh should be a fun one tonight chris black thanks so much for taking the time out this morning anytime chris black producer at sportsnet at down to black thanks to him bob lorenz and brent lavalley for coming on congrats to the vancouver canadians on winning that northwest league championship 
on the weekend, which was a lot of fun. Uh, Kikuchi against Clark Schmidt tonight, 7 o'clock. Sportsa has it for you, of course, on the TV and radio side. If you need more to, t- to tee it up, Blair and Barker have you 5-7. to seven. They've also got you for Jay's Talk postgame. Uh, Brent Gunning and Sam McKee are coming up next. I'm sure they will talk a little bit about that if they have time between all the Mike Babcock stuff that surely they're uh, still digesting and uh, a weird week in the NFL. Although it's Tuesday, I keep thinking it's Monday because I was off yesterday Uh, and because my brain is mush from this playoff race. Uh, We will be back at 10 a.m. tomorrow to talk to you about this one, to tee up Kevin Gosman versus Michael King in the second game of the series, to take a look at what happened. Seattle at Oakland, Texas versus Boston, Houston versus Baltimore. Big night in the American League.